Righteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Well, in this short opening reading here, and we know that the Lord will bless it to our hearts and to our lives tonight. This is the roll call of the communicant membership of the church at Corinth. It was comprised of some very unusual people that had been won by the grace of God and brought into the family of the Lord. In our previous two studies, we've been considering the arguments of of those who want to revise the biblical texts which pertain to homosexuality. This is one of the, the key ones in the New Testament, and I think one of the most encouraging ones. Increasingly, amongst liberal theologians and and really apostate uh, Protestantism, and sadly today, uh, we'll go further than that, even amongst so-called evangelical people, there is an attempt to reinterpret scripture in order to accommodate sin. Oftentimes, that's what happens. People want to reinterpret the scriptures of truth that the church has looked at for thousands of years and have come to a, a considered view upon, and they want to reinterpret those scriptures uh, in order just to accommodate the sin of the day, and in order not just to accommodate the sin of the day, but in order to explain away the sin of the day. Men such as Matthew Vine, and we've been quoting him over the last few weeks, they want us to believe that homosexual relationships and and of course they want to portray them as loving monogamous relationships uh, are not what are really addressed in scripture something else other than than that type of loving relationship that's addressed in scripture and therefore they have to be airbrushed and the negativity has to be airbrushed out and the condemnation attached to them has to be reinterpreted really to mean commendation because uh, that lifestyle of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, The government insists today that we have to commend it and nobody dare uh, condemn it. I have been reading some very good articles online by a man by the name of John Freeman in which he asked the question, how are Christians to think about homosexuality? You know, what is our thoughts? We, We can't shy away from these things. And we have to think biblically. And we have to think in a loving manner, and yet in a faithful manner. And I'm just going to give you the headings of his answers. You can uh, look it up online. He's a very, very good writer. This is his overview. First, homosexuality in Scripture is always spoken in terms of an action, something done physically with another person, or an internal and or an internal act of thought pattern of mind and the heart. We'll come to the word 
That's used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, just in a, a minute. But homosexuality is always defined in terms of an activity, a behavior, or a person who engages in behavior of the heart and body that is contrary to the sexuality that God planned in the Garden of Eden for mankind. Second, homosexuality is labelled as sin. You know, it's a big thing today. When 2006 same-sex relationships were legalised and the first same-sex partnership uh, was solemnised, for one of the better words, in the City Hall in Belfast, I was part of those who went down at that time and we had a gospel witness outside it and I didn't know what was on the banner but all all these men unfurled the banner and I stood behind it and it just simply said homosexuality is sin. That's not what the world wants to say. The world wants to say something totally different. But everywhere in the Bible, brethren and sisters, and we've been looking at some key passages, Genesis chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 18, we've looked at Jude verse 7, we've looked at the book of of Romans chapter 1. It it describes a behaviour between men and men, women and women, not in that loving, romantic, rosy, alternative lifestyle that is wanted to be portrayed today, but it's described just as sin. A sin. So we, we can't get away from these things. It's an action. It is an action that is equated in the Bible as being sinful. And it's never described as just a condition or a state of being. So the the modern idea is, of course, people talk today about orientation. And that term, sexual orientation, that term has only been coined or, or come into popular usage, say, in the last decade, two decades. It's not found in Scripture, unsurprisingly. It's not found in the Word of God. It is assumed in the Bible that we can become inclined or orientated to anything which we continually give our minds to. If your mind is continually dwelling on something, you will give yourself to it. We all know that. We all know it. We all know it all too well. And so if you give your mind to dwell on something, yes, you will be orientated toward it. You will be attracted to it. So to do something in thought or action enough times and over a long period in times, uh, that action will become ingrained in us and will become part of us. So let us not swallow this lie. I have heard Anglican bishops here in Northern Ireland say that the actual sexual act is sinful, but the orientation is not sinful. Now, now how, how do you explain that? That you can think it and you can be drawn to it and it's not sinful. It's only the doing of it is sinful. Such things are, 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 are illogical and they do not make sense to me whatsoever. So this passage that we're going to look at tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 9, 
And if you turn over there, we'll just do them together because I was going to further this for another week, but I, I decided no. I'm not going to take it any further than it. We'll come back to it because this is the it is a pivotal issue. I believe it's one which is going to be the battleground for truth in the years that lie ahead. I believe it's one which is going to cost us our freedoms in the days that lie ahead. It seems nearly childish, silly, to say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and can't be anything else will cost you your job, but it has, and it will. And I believe it will impinge greatly if the current tide is not turned upon even our freedoms to preach the gospel in this land. And I hope you'll see that tonight. Because the gospel is connected here. The devil not only wants to attack uh, the institute of marriage, because in doing that, he knows he attacks the family. And the family is the basis of the church and the basis of society. But he also wants to attack our freedoms. Our freedoms to express our our genuinely held biblical views. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about hatred, I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about genuinely held theological views in the Word of God. Not irrational views, but views that are taken from holy scriptures and from the ancient creeds of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> So Paul dealt with that also, not just in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, but 1 Timothy 1 and 10. Let me read that out to you. 1 Timothy 1 and 10. He said, For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel, of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So we'll explain that just in a little minute. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and here it's very plain, isn't it, that there were some who were members of the church at Corinth who in their previous life were openly practicing a homosexuals. The word homosexual, again, is a new word. Uh, in the Bible, the, the word that is spoken of, and I've been using that over the past few weeks, is the word sodomy or sodomite. So that is the modern equivalent of it. But we can use both. And those <coughs> who were members of the church at Corinth, it's very clear to me, that some of them were former practitioners. The city of Corinth, of course, in which Paul planted a New Testament church, it was renowned in the ancient world for its sexual immorality. To Corinthianize was a proverb, even in the days of the apostolic church. <clears throat> the city had no restraints. It was popularized by pagan worship and idolatry and to go along with the pagan worship and idolatry was prostitution. And some of those idol temples that were in Corinth, they had uh, hundreds, thousands 
of prostitutes <coughs> who were at the temple and who were part of all who came to the temple and all of the depraved behaviour that took place there. The Roman goddess Venus <coughs> was the goddess of love and beauty. And it is said that in that one temple alone, and that's only one temple, there, one, there were 1,000 <coughs> female slaves who served as prostitutes for the thousands who came to visit it. So it was in this environment that this New Testament church was planted. If a church can prosper in Corinth, it can prosper in 2022, anywhere in the world. And it's understandable then that converts from the society that came into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ at Corinth, they came in with all of the baggage that they had in society. And thus Paul had to take up three chapters at least in his first letter uh, to address those issues, sexual issues, sexual sins, uh, because the, the very moral purity of the church was under attack simply because the converts came from the immoral society that they were drawn from. And if God was to give us revival, what we were singing about in our opening hymn tonight in this land of ours, there would be a whole swathe of converts come into the church of Jesus Christ who come from the immoral background of the society of our day. And you and I would not have the right to put them out. You and I would only be expected to welcome them in and to nurture them and to teach them the things of the Lord. Because that's exactly what was happening here at Corinth. So in verse 6, Paul gives a description of those who are outside, uh, uh, or sorry, in chapter 6, he gives a description starting at verse 9, <clears throat> which he just uses one all-encompassing phrase to describe those that are outside the kingdom of God. He speaks of them as being unrighteous. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has but one type of citizen, and that citizen is a righteous citizen. And the only righteousness that is good enough for any sinner to enter into God's kingdom is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only his perfection that meets the divine requirements of God's holy law. And it's his righteousness alone in which we can stand before Almighty God, the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3 verse 22. So then in verse 9 and 10, Paul proceeds to list some of those sins of those that are unrighteous and outside the kingdom of God. And this has been called by some the roll call of the damned. What a roll call it is. And at the very top of it, Paul lists sexual sin. He starts off with fornicators. <clears throat> and of course we know that fornication is the sexual sin of the single because God's word is very plain. All sexual relationships outside of Christian marriage are sin, 
or sin. We have all types of relationships today. We have those that cohabit. They, they never get married. They don't think they need to get married. And they just cohabit. Then there are those who maybe they don't officially cohabit, but they certainly uh, have, have private sexual relationships one with the other. And I think it's significant here. It's not the, the sexual sin of the homosexual that is first on the list. It's the so-called heterosexual people that are highlighted here. Because this is an attack. <clears throat> it's an attack on that oneness of flesh that God ordained in Genesis chapter 2. When God brought Eve to Adam and they became one flesh. And of course we know the oneness of flesh is not only a reference to the union of the institution of marriage, but it is that physical union also. So sexual immorality, it's always been around, brethren and sisters, but today it is blatant. And instead of becoming the exception, it has become the normal pattern for the land in which we live in. Sexual immorality is the normal pattern for our nation. But it's not so with God. Because outside the kingdom of God, God puts the fornicator. And I want to say solemnly, I have no doubt some of them sit in church pews every Sunday with a suit on them and with their Sunday best on them. But they're outside the kingdom of God. Then Paul refers to idolaters. Now idolatry is the worship of anything other than the living true uh, God, Jehovah. Now set in the context of, of Corinth there was a multiplicity of gods. There were many temples in which heathen idols were exalted and worshipped and, and, and people committed all types of, of deviant acts in order to, as it were, to appraise and to find a, the, the blessing of these gods. And the, the parallels with our own land are very obvious because we live, in which, we live in an age in which the flesh is adored by multitudes. The flesh is worshipped more than the spirit today. We, we live in a fleshly age. Uh, even the dress of individuals, it's fleshly. And then we come to adulterers. We're still with what we call heterosexual people. And of course this is a reference to the sin of the married. Fornication in the Bible speaks of sex outside of marriage. Adultery, of course, speaks of the breaking of the marriage bond. And of course that's a clear breach of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The old-fashioned order of service for marriage says... What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. How cheap that is today. 50% <clears throat> of marriages end in divorce. 
Our government now has legislated for easy, quick-fix divorces. Marriage is no longer the sacred institution, even that this land held uh, in common grace. It's just a piece of paper that you can walk away from. But I do not believe, brethren and sisters, that vows taken before Almighty God in front of a congregation that are called, because that's what really guests are called to a wedding to do, to witness the vows of the couple at the front who are taking their vows before Almighty God, that those vows can be broken easily. They're sacred, solemn vows. When you think of the, even the sexual sin of our land, you, 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 you wonder, why does God not just destroy it? Why does God not just pour out his wrath now upon it? Why wait to the judgment day? But he's a God of mercy. And he's a God of patience. And then in our uh, King James Version, it talks here about uh, effeminate. Effeminate. And this word, malakos, as is pronounced, it's only used here, one time in the New Testament. And that's what Paul uses here. And it's a very unusual word. Now, of course, the revisionists debate this word. And I'm not going to debate it with them. You can look up online all of the Greek uh, concordances. You can research this word all for yourself. But it has to do with the with the perversion of sexual rules. Uh, it has to do with a man pretending to be a woman, for want of a, 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 a better description. And we do have men who dress up as women. Today we even have men who can go to the National Health Service and can have funded surgery to make themselves like women. But biologically, they're still men. That does not change. And they can have surgery that will mutilate their body forever. But it doesn't change innately what they are before Almighty God. So it is a very unusual word and it means to exchange one sexual role for another. And vice versa, women want to be made like men. Then it talks here in our AV, King James Version, about abusers of themselves with mankind. This is a very debated term. The term is translated by the translators of the AV from A compound word in the Greek. And it is connected with sodomy. This is a euphemism. All of these sexual terms in the King James Authorised Version, they're all uh, used so cautiously uh, and so respectfully. There's nothing of the coarseness of the day in them. And so this really is a, a, a euthanism here for uh, sodomite relationships. 
It comes from, as a compound word, I've looked this up in the Greek, it comes from arson, which means man, and oata, which means bed. And so it's men who lie in bed with other men, abusers of themselves with mankind. And some commentators believe that Paul coined this phrase from the Greek Septuagint of the Leviticus Holiness Code in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22. That's the, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was, they called it the Septuagint 70. 70 translators produced this uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus quoted from it too in the New Testament. So that's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. If you go there just for a wee minute. These are the contested passages. So of course the revisionists, they argue. They argue that this word does not mean what we think it means. So going back to what we said in the previous weeks, it means... More an abusive relationship is not referring to this loving monogamous relationship that the LGBT plus community want us to believe uh, exists amongst uh, all of those practitioners. So it says here, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind. It's pretty strong, but it's the same word, isn't it? <clears throat> I know it is. It's used in the context of the Ten Commandments. We have all the commandments here. Men stealers, liars, perjured persons, whoremongers. It's all in there. Now, those who advocate that this does not mean anything sinful or wicked, why would God put it in a list of sins that are condemned by the Ten Commandments. And why would God put it in the role of the damned in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9? No Orthodox Jew was tail-bearing, whispering, backbiting, the extortioners, people who charge extortionate interest rates <clears throat> could we say some of the high-flying bankers could we say some of the credit card holders could we say some of the, the easy loans that are out there today with the, with the extortionate interest rates that go with them extortioners this was Paul's society <coughs> remember when he went to Corinth in the book of Acts he felt like being quiet. I don't blame him for failing uh, to being quiet. I don't blame him for not wanting to speak out. It is hard to speak out when society all round about you is so corrupt and so sinful. But that was Corinth. And God told uh, Paul at Corinth, Be not afraid, but speak, for I have much people in this city. Not wonderful. He was told, preach out, Paul, because even in this sinful society, I have much people, and they're going to be saved, and they're going to be called out of this society, and they're going to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, 
and they're going to be made ready for heaven, and they're going to be made ready for home. So our own day looks spiritually discouraging, but I think we ought to take heart. We should take heart as we look at this great gospel text, because God saves all types of people. And from that roll call of the damned, Paul was able to say, such were some of you. Such were some of you. He's addressing the membership at Corinth. And he said, such were some of you. That's the background that God brought you from. Does not give us hope and encouragement to pray on. To pray on for our own loved ones that are outside of Christ, that are ensnared by the devil and the trap of the devil. To pray on and to look to the Lord. This text teaches us about the salvation which brings sinners into the kingdom of God. Just <clears throat> to simplify it, there, there are three phases, phrases here that simplify what happens. You're washed, plural, ye, N-R-A-V is the plural. You're all washed, that's what Paul's saying. You're all sanctified. You're all justified. The washing reminds us of, of what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, and verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is regeneration. Without the regenerating work of God, the Holy Ghost, none of us could get into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter whether you're the most self-righteous person in the country or the most down-and-out sinner in the country. You'll not get into the kingdom of God without this mysterious work of the Spirit of God in a saving manner in your heart and life and, and the washing uh, away of your sin with the blood of the Lamb. This washing. Then it says you're sanctified. The sinner at regeneration is given a new principle of life. So when we talk about being born again, it just simply means we're born with the life that's from above. God has put the life above into our souls and into our hearts and into our, our very being. God has put that into our very being. A wonderful idea. And it's because of that new life within us that the old patterns can be broken. It's the new life that breaks the old patterns. And when God saves that soul, he intends that soul to grow in the likeness of his own dear son. So we are sanctified and we are being sanctified. Salvation is not something just that happened to me when I was a 16-year-old lad. Salvation is something that's happening today. I'm still being saved today from sin and I'm being changed and I'm being sanctified and I'm being made like unto his glorious likeness. And then it says here, you're justified. Now I have a new standing before God. I'm no longer on the roll call of the damned. Not wonderful. Isn't that something to rejoice at tonight? Even if you could just, in prayer tonight, thank the Lord that he took you from that roll call of the damned and he put you on the roll call of heaven. We're part of the ones that are washed. We're part of the ones that are sanctified. We're part of the ones that are justified with a new standing in heaven tonight, all because of the work of salvation in our hearts and in our lives. Such were some of you, but... Thank God for all of those little buts that are in the Bible. But, such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. That's salvation. And that's what the saving grace of God can do. And this is 
exactly how the Bible describes salvation. It's a change. It's a transformation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away and the all, all things become new. A new life, what does it bring with it? A new lifestyle. A new life brings a new lifestyle. You've been washed. I no longer am clad with the, the garments of sin. I am being sanctified, so God is changing me. And I have a new status in heaven, a new standing before Almighty God. What, what's God doing in our hearts? He's transforming us. Has he finished with us? No. If he'd finished with us, we'd all be in glory tonight. But he's still working in our hearts and lives. We're on finished business. God is still transforming us. He took us from the roll call of the damned. He washed us. He sanctified us. He justified us. He's changing us. And one day up in heaven, he's going to glorify us. Now, if this reference here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 does not mean what we believe it to be, that this is a reference to those who defile themselves with mankind, who lie in the same bed with mankind, or are women, because remember Paul deals with the women in Romans chapter 1 as well, then there's no change. There's no change. They'll just continue like that for all of life and be lost in eternity. But when God saves somebody, God changes them. God changes them. And it's the change that makes the difference. I'm sure I couldn't tell you the story the well as Linda can tell it. She has been reading a book, sharing it with me. Of a young man who went out into the far country and into the gay lifestyle and sin. Mother prayed for him, held on to God for him. For years she never heard telephone until one day somebody phoned her and said her son was in prison. And in prison he got a Bible and he started to read it. And just to cut the story, he came to the Lord. And it was a a process of transformation. You know, the Bible describes salvation like putting off the old garments and putting on the new garments. And that's a process. Sometimes it's a process of taking those old garments off and putting them on. But God changed that young man. Through all his battles, God changed him. And God put the burden of ministry upon his heart. And he wanted to go to the Moody Bible College in America. His mother had opportunity to speak to the the principal of the college in very unusual circumstances. She took the wrong seat in the auditorium and she was sitting up amongst the preachers but she was told just to sit on and God gave her the opportunity to speak to the principal of the college and this young man now was out of prison and She asked the principal, does this college accept sinners? Because she knew the background that he'd come from. 
and the principal asked, but has he been saved? Has he been changed? And his mother was able to answer, yes, he's been redeemed. And he was allowed into the college and served God faithfully in it for many years. It's the redeeming blood of the Lamb that changes us all. It reached into the society of Corinth. It changed individuals. It made them members of the local body of Christ. It's still doing it today. I think this is a text of great encouragement. We ought not to let go of it. That roll call covers all our families, all our families and our lost ones, our lost loved ones. They're all somewhere under those headings. But I'm glad, just as David found that young Egyptian man wounded and dying, as we discovered in 1 Samuel 30 on Sunday night, so he finds those who have been broken by sin and by this wicked society in which we live in. <clears throat> and he pours in the healing balm of the gospel. And he restores them. And he transforms them. And he makes them new. It's not what we long to see. Because that's what God is still doing right across the world today. So let's take our encouragement from this. And as we take our encouragement from it, let's plead with the Lord. Let us not <coughs> cease to plead for those that are in the far country because their prayers, our prayers can reach them in that country, wherever they are tonight. I always take encouragement. <coughs> Sometimes we don't know where our children are, our young people are. But I always take encouragement in knowing God knows exactly where they are. And in his appointed time and in his appointed manner. God can, just as David found that young man on Sunday night, God can lift them up and change them and transform them. And when they are redeemed, they'll have new lives. Let's not say someone who has been in a lifestyle of whatever shape or form. Remember that list didn't start off with homosexual, homosexuality. It started off with heterosexuality and the sins of the heterosexual people. Whatever sin our loved ones are in, God can save them from it and change them by his grace through it. And we long to see the day, brother and sister, when these pews are full of such people. <clears throat> you know what, what challenge that would be to us as a church, wouldn't it? We would have to learn how to, to deal with new individuals and they wouldn't talk like us and they wouldn't dress like us and they wouldn't look like us and they wouldn't talk like us because they've come from a different culture and background and we would have to take the time to nurture them, mentor them, help them to put on the new garments and encourage them as redeemed sinners to press onward to heaven and to home. We, refute, we repudiate and refute the revisionists. I don't care if they say they're Calvinists. I don't care if they say they <coughs> believe in the, the, the scriptures of truth. Anyone who takes these basic scriptural texts and tries to pervert them and twist them 
<coughs> they're not doing anything for God. They're just advancing the kingdom of darkness and encouraging sinners to stay in it. Thank God for the light. And I, I believe, I, I do believe as a church, we're going to be, we're going to be as those <coughs> we, 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 we sang in that opening hymn about grace to spread the light. Even to hold the light today is going to cost us. Because men don't want the light. They want to stay in darkness. So let us be prepared to pay the cost, whatever that is. But to hold up that torch and to take that light and to keep it bright. Here and on alone. And as God enables us to encourage, encourage people in other places <coughs> to hold it there as well. We're going to put all of those messages together.